Well, let's pray. Lord, what a, it's a long passage. We pray that you'd help us to take all of these ideas that are out here in this passage and distill them and make them clear so that we have something that we can walk away with this morning and put into practice as we seek to emulate the missional practices we see in Paul's life. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a Swiss theologian by the name of Emil Bruner. He once made this statement, the church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. Now think about that. If a fire stops burning, what happens? It goes out. It ceases to exist. If the church ceases to spread the gospel, what happens to that church? It ceases to exist. Because there's no new converts being made. When the old ones die off, there's no more church left. So the church exists by mission just as a fire exists by burning. The church is a missionary organism. It's that, it's that, um, that body of Christ that the Lord has selected to be His agent to distribute the gospel throughout the world. And we're going to follow Paul and Barnabas as they go to Pisidian Antioch this morning, and we're going to see how they engaged in mission when they were in that city. Now last week, we took a look at Paul and Barnabas' mission on the island of Cyprus. And what we found out there is that when the expedition started out, Barnabas was the leader of the group. His name always comes first, Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. But at the end of that mission on Cyprus, in verse 13, it says, Paul and his companions. Paul's name is put first, and it's never put anything other than first through the rest of the book of Acts. So Paul becomes the de facto leader of the expedition, of this mission, there at the end of their time on the island of Cyprus. And we also speculated that perhaps the reason that John Mark leaves at this point and goes back to Jerusalem may have been tied into the fact that he wasn't real happy about the change of leadership. It was his uncle who was the leader who no longer was functioning, functioning as leader and now somebody new had stepped up in his place and maybe John Mark was not good with that. I mean that's just one possibility. We really don't know because the Bible isn't, isn't clear on that point. So on Cyprus you recall they started at the eastern end of the island at Salamis. They started there and they started moving westward to the westward end of the island which was Paphos and they entered every village and every synagogue of every village and they proclaimed Christ. And by the time we, they got to the western end of the island they had made a notable convert. This man was named Sergius Paulus and he was the proconsul of the island. A proconsul is like the governor, like the governor of our state of California, a bigwig, very politically powerful person. Well, here you've got these three political nobodies, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. They don't have any political power, but yet God uses them to reach and to convert the most powerful man on the island. So that's a, that's a huge victory for their very first stop of their very first mission. And at that point, they leave the island of Cyprus and they sail across to the mainland, Pamphylia. They come to Perga and then they keep traveling inward, in, inland, and they finally arrive at Pisidian Antioch. Now, do you remember the name of the city that they left? The, the sending city? Nobody does? 
<laughs> they were sent out from a city called Antioch. And here's another Antioch, but it's called Pisidian Antioch. So two, there was actually 16 different Antiochs during that time. So it was a very common name for a city. But um, here, here they come to Pisidian Antioch. And what I want to do with you this morning is just look at what took place when they got to this city. How did they engage in mission when they first arrived in a new location like this city, Pisidian Antioch? And we're going to do something real simple, simple today. I just want to bring out four principles for you today. Four missional practices. Number one, Paul began his ministry in every city by preaching in the synagogues. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But when, when Paul engaged in mission, if he came to a new city, there's zero Christians in the city. The way he starts his ministry there is by going to the synagogue and preaching there. Now, he might get kicked out of the synagogue later, and then he'll just go to the Gentiles from then on. But he always starts in the synagogue. Acts 13, verse 14. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. Or you could look at Acts 13.5. This is in Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Or you could go to Acts 14.1. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and Greeks. Or you could go to Acts 17, verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And if we had time, and I don't think I need to belabor this, because I've already proved it to you, like four Scriptures, we could go to Acts 17.10, Acts 17.17, 17, Acts 18.4, Acts 18.19, and 19.8. And in every situation, this is his, his practice. He doesn't seem to, to deter from this practice unless he is kicked out of the synagogue and then he'll try some other method. But this is his first approach when he comes to a city. Now we need to avoid the mistake of thinking that what's going on in the synagogue is a church meeting. It's not a church meeting. Who's meeting in those synagogues? Jews. The Jews are there. Are these Jews Christians? Have they believed in Jesus? No. So they're unsaved Jews. And you've also got some God-fearing Gentiles. Now a God-fearer was someone who attached themselves to the Jews and went to the synagogue, but they had not become a Jew. They hadn't been circumcised. So they were a God-fearer. They were interested in Judaism and learning more about it, but they weren't yet a full-blown Jewish person. So you had God-fearing Gentiles, and you had Jews meeting together in the synagogues. But it's not a church meeting. Where did the church meetings take place? In the homes of the believers? Yeah, in homes. Not in the synagogues. So when Paul wanted to edify the church, he would meet in homes with them. When he wanted to evangelize, he went to the synagogue. The synagogue was a center for evangelism in the early church. So he attended the synagogues not for fellowship with believers, but to evangelize the lost. So, of course, the, the $100,000 question is why? Why would he go to the synagogues to begin his evangelistic efforts in every city? Well, let's think about that. I think if we just spend some time mulling this over, we can come up with some pretty good ideas of why he would do that. So, 
in the synagogues, Paul would be speaking to the people who believed many of the same things that he did. These are Jews. Paul is a Jew. The Jews believed that there was one God. Well, so did Paul. The Jews believed in Jehovah. That's who Paul believed in. Maker of heaven and earth. The Jews believed in the inspiration and authority and infallibility of the Old Testament scriptures. So did Paul. He believed the same thing. The Jews believed that Israel was God's chosen people. So did Paul. The Jews believed in the Ten Commandments as the synopsis of the law given to Israel. Well, Paul believed that too. The Jews believed that God was going to send a Messiah or a Savior in due time. Well, Paul knew who that Savior was. So there was all kinds of common ground between the, those who were attending the synagogue and the Apostle Paul. The problem was those attending the synagogue didn't have Christ. And they had to have Christ to be saved. And so Paul went there to reveal to them who their Messiah was. That he had come in the flesh. So there's the first reason, I think, why Paul would go to the synagogue. He had this, this basis of common ground. You could say common theology. They all already shared. Secondly, in the synagogues, Paul would be meeting God-fearing Gentiles. Remember, God called him as the apostle to the Gentiles. Well, where is he going to find any receptive Gentiles to the gospel? Probably a good place to go would be the synagogue, because you're going to meet some Gentiles who are already steeped in Judaism. And Paul is steeped in Judaism, so it's just he needs to make the bridge between Judaism to Christianity through pointing them to Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, in the synagogues, Paul would have the opportunity to speak and reason with the congregation. Synagogue services were, lot, were not very similar to our church meetings today. Like in most church meetings, the normal person can't say anything. They're supposed to sit down and shut up and listen to the preacher in front. The synagogue wasn't like that. In the synagogue, any, well, you had to be a male, you had to be a man, any male Jew was permitted to stand up and address the congregation. Well, Paul was a male Jew. So he thought, what a glorious opportunity. They're going to let me speak to a bunch of unsaved people in their, in their meetings? Well, let's go, you know. So I think that's why the synagogues became the center for evangelism in the early church. So this is what I want you to ask yourself. Can you think of any modern-day parallel to the synagogues? Do we have any place like that that we could go that we could share the gospel? Where there's already some common ground, we already share some theology together. Does anything come to anybody's mind about that? Catholicism? Okay, so, yeah. What I thought was nominal Christians. And that's, I, so I can say that about Catholics because I was one. <laughs> nominal means in name only. They call themselves that, but they're not a, and I have to be careful because I think some Catholics are saved. They're real Christians, but I wasn't. I, I was raised in it and I was lost. And I, it was like a year after I left the church that God got a hold of my life and saved me and turned my life around. But you could have nominal Christians in Baptist churches or Episcopalian, right? Or Lutheran, or they're all over the place. Okay. Okay. I got you. Yeah. Um, so to me, that, that would be a very close parallel. Wherever nominal Christians are, that would be a good place for believers to go and to bring the gospel. Because we share a lot of the same theology. If you ask them if they believe in God, they say, of course I do. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. 
Do you believe in the Bible? Sure. I mean, they believe these things in their mind. They've given mental assent to all of them, but they've never been converted. They're still living in their sins. They're still living according to their fleshly lusts. They're dominated by sin, even though they would profess to believe the same things that other Christians do. And we can find nominal Christians everywhere in America. I think it's a lot harder to find them in persecuted countries because you're not going to make a profession of faith if you're persecuted unless you're a real Christian. It's, it's unlikely. But here in America, there's no, there's no outward um, yet terrible persecution that Christians face. And so we have lots of nominal Christians here in the U.S. So you can find them in your families sometimes, in your neighborhoods, uh, in your friends, your acquaintances, and in your churches. <laughs> in our churches, we have nominal Christians. A real good question for you to ask somebody if you would like to share Christ with them is real simple. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? Just start with that. Just let them talk. Uh, don't interrupt them. Just sit there and listen. Try to figure out what their worldview is. Where are they coming from? Try to, try to get a glimpse of their background and what they believe about the world and about, about what is revealed in Scripture. Only then will we really know how we can connect with that person. We have to first kind of understand the person, where they're coming from. So that's the first missional principle we see here. They started in the synagogue. Maybe we should look for places where we already have some common beliefs with other people. They, they might turn out to be the most, most receptive. And that's going to bring us into point number two. So let's go there. The second thing we see here is that Paul sought to build common ground between himself and his listeners. What I mean by that is he didn't start off telling them about all the things that they disagreed on and tried to change their mind. He started off by sharing all the things that they all agreed on together. And what do I mean by that? Okay, first of all, in this chapter, let's notice what's going on. Paul is speaking on the Sabbath, verse 14. He's in the synagogue, verse 14. The reading of the law and the prophets are taking place, that's verse 15. And Paul's listeners are called men of Israel, that's 16. So these are Jews in a synagogue on the Sabbath day. And where does Paul begin his message? He basically recounts the story of Israel. He gives them a history lesson on Judaism. It's a history lesson very similar to what we saw Stephen doing before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. And remember, Paul was listening to that message of Stephen. He was there. He was holding the cloaks for the people who stoned Stephen. So I wonder if that made a real impact on him. And now he's kind of using a little bit of what he heard from Stephen. And he's using the same tactic again here in Antioch of Pisidia. Notice that Paul begins with the fathers. Verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Who are the fathers that he's talking about? No, no, it's not talking about God. The human fathers. He's talking about the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's right. Those are the fathers. And then um, he talks about the Exodus in verse 17. 
The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. So there's the exodus from Egypt. And then he talks about the wilderness wanderings in verse 18. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And then he mentions the dispossessing of the land of Canaan in verse 19. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance. He goes on from there, and he talks about the judges, the period of the judges in verse 20. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. And then he mentions Saul in verse 21. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And then finally he gets to David in verse 22. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I found David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Now as he's going through this history, what is Paul emphasizing? He's emphasizing what God has done. He's emphasizing the initiative that God took. God chose, verse 17. God made the people great, verse 17. God led them out of Egypt, verse 17. God put up with them in the wilderness, verse 18. God destroyed seven nations, verse 19. I'm sorry, yeah, 19. God distributed their land, 19. God gave them judges. God gave them Saul. God removed Saul. God raised up David. He's telling them everything that God did in their history. This didn't happen by accident, and it wasn't just the people of Israel making decisions. There's a God in heaven who is doing all of these things. So up to this point, there was nothing Paul had said that any Jew in that synagogue would have disagreed with. They're all in complete agreement of everything Paul is saying. All of them knew their history. So what has Paul done? He's developed a common base of shared truth to build trust with the people that he's speaking to. They're in agreement. All of them agree on all of these things. And so up to this point, they're saying, yeah, amen, amen. You're right. We agree with that. Well, they're not going to agree completely because he's about to get to his punchline in verse 23. He hasn't got there yet. But at least by this time, they understand that the one speaking to them knows Jewish history. And he believes it. And he believes in the same God that they believe in. So can we do the same thing? When we're seeking to minister to people or to bring that person to salvation, my suggestion is that perhaps we should start off emphasizing the things that we already agree with each other on. That's what Paul's doing. If you're talking to a nominal Christian, hey, even if you're talking to a Muslim, they believe in one God, maker of heaven and earth. Well, so do you. There are some things that we can agree with people about. <laughs> um, nominal Christians, we believe in God, so do they. We believe in Jesus, so do they. We believe in the grace of God. Well, they do too. We believe in the Bible. So, I think it would be wise for us to start off and try to build some trust before we build the bridge to Christ, build some trust by emphasizing all the things that we agree together on. Does that make sense? Okay, that's the second missional principle. Number three, Paul's goal was to bring his listeners to Jesus. 
As soon as he gets to David in verse 22, he leapfrogs a thousand years from David all the way to Jesus. Because all of the people of Israel knew that the Messiah was going to be a son of David. And so as soon as he gets to David, he says, I'm done. I'm done with the history lesson. We're going to, we're going to the goal line, which is Jesus Christ. From the very beginning of Paul's message, he knew where he was headed. He wasn't just speaking uh, off the top of his head. He had a plan in mind, is what I'm trying to say. And his plan was to get these unconverted Jews to Jesus Christ. And you can tell that because he passes over a thousand years of history to get to, the, to Jesus in verse 23. From the descendants of this man, David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. And he's going to explain all about Jesus from verse 23 all the way down to verse 39. And he's going to call for a response of faith in these unconverted Jews. He reveals Christ to them and calls for a response of faith. So the theme of Paul's message is that God has brought to Israel a Savior who is Jesus. Now let's think this through. He tells them Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. In verse 23, from the descendants of David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of God. Secondly, he tells them Jesus is a Savior. Verse 23. Thirdly, he says that Jesus was announced by John the Baptist. That's verse 24 and 25. The forerunner appeared announcing the coming of the Messiah in Jesus Christ. Number four, he tells him that Jesus fulfilled prophecies. Look at 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. So the prophecies concerning Christ were fulfilled when Jesus was condemned. So he's the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And number five, Jesus was crucified even though he was innocent. Verse 28. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. Then he tells them, Jesus was buried. Verse 29. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. He was buried. And then he tells them that Jesus was raised from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. Verse 30. And what's interesting is that he's super succinct on all these other points. But when he gets to the resurrection, he goes off on this long tangent and really delves into the resurrection of Christ. And we think that's a little bit odd today because our gospel preaching really doesn't emphasize the resurrection that much. But the sermons in the book of Acts, that's what they emphasized. You can look back to Peter's preaching on Pentecost, and he really delves into the resurrection of Christ. And so does Paul here. And then his next point is that Jesus appeared to his people. That's verse 31. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. The very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. The very people that are now alive, and you can go and interview them, they saw Jesus risen from the dead. That's his point. People that you can go and have a conversation with. 
Jesus appeared to them. So he's trying to build credibility with his words by saying, we have witnesses. In fact, there was 500 of them that saw Jesus alive. And then his last point is, Jesus provides forgiveness of sins. Look at 38. Therefore. What's the word therefore tell you? <laughs> He's coming to a climax. Based on everything I've said, here's the conclusion. Therefore, here's the point of my sermon, Paul's saying, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. So Paul's conclusion to his sermon is, God has forgiveness of sins available to you through Jesus Christ. And they might have already thought, well, I'm already forgiven. I mean, I take my sacrifices to the temple. I go up on Passover and Pentecost. I'm a good Jew. It wasn't good enough. Animal sacrifices could never really take away and put away sin. It took the final ultimate sacrifice of Christ to actually put away sin. And Paul is announcing to them, he's here. God has sent him. He died on a cross for sins. He rose from the dead. You need to embrace him. He says in verse 40, Take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. And in other words, take heed that you don't blow me off today and just ignore what I'm telling you. Take heed. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish. Don't be a scoffer. Don't perish. Because I'm accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. So that's Paul's message. Jesus is the culmination of God's revelation. There's nothing greater or bigger or higher than the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's it. You can't get any greater than that. And that's where Paul is driving this message from the very beginning to that, that culmination. So folks, there is a missional practice here. If we want to bring someone to salvation, you cannot avoid this step. You must speak of Jesus Christ to that person. It's not good enough to invite them to your church. You haven't, you haven't shared the gospel if you're just inviting to church. People can go to church their whole life and go to hell. They not to be, need to be brought to Jesus. They need a relationship to Christ. It's not enough to say, well, I'll pray for you. Those, those are good things. Inviting to church is a good thing, and praying for someone is a good thing, but it's not sharing the gospel with somebody. You need to open your mouth and let the words Jesus come out of your mouth when you're talking to that person. And you need to say, you need to come and get to know this Jesus Christ. He changed my life and He can change yours. He provides forgiveness of sins. Do you want to have absolutely no guilt because God has removed all of your sin? past, present, and future, you're clean before Him, come to Jesus. So that's the, it's a very simple principle, but we just need to be, from the moment we begin talking to someone, we need to be thinking, that's the goal in mind. How can I get them from where they're at now to the goal of coming into union with Jesus Christ? And you may not be able to do it in one conversation. It might take 15 or 20 or 100 conversations. You might be building a relationship Remember how we talked about building trust by showing the things that you actually agree on? Some of that may need to happen because people don't automatically trust a stranger. 
It's interesting how in our discovery study, I think at the very beginning, some of the folks that were coming didn't know what to think. And they didn't trust us. But we've really become good friends with the people that have been coming for the last nine months. And there is a trust built up now. And so it's, it's easy to share truth because there's a level of relationship that has been developed. And we just need to remember, God may need you to work on that relationship. And it may take some time. Don't expect instant results as you're sharing the gospel. The last point here, missional practice. Paul could rest in the sovereign grace of God as he's doing this work. And I say that because of verse 48. Luke inserts this little editorial comment to help us to know what's going on. Paul is kicked out of the synagogue, and so he goes to the Gentiles and preaches, and it says in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now we want to turn that phrase around, and we want to make it say, as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. But that's backwards. That's exactly backwards of how Luke put it in the Bible. As many as had been, that's past tense, that's prior activity. As many as already had been in the past appointed to eternal life were now coming to faith. So what that tells us is that faith is the result of an appointment by God to eternal life. Election precedes faith. We're not elected because we believe. We believe because we're elected, according to, the, to Luke, who wrote this gospel. So what does that do for the person who's trying to be engaged in mission? It releases them from the burden and the guilt of feeling like it's all on them. Like if that person isn't saved, it's my fault. But wait a minute. Do you think you have the ability to save anybody anyway? <laughs> Can, can, can you save anybody? Jesus is the Savior. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't save a flea. I mean, <laughs> I, let's say we have a, a worm. It'd be just as impossible for me to save anybody as to take that worm and turn him into an ant. I can't even do that. Uh, this, this, is a, this is a miracle. When someone comes to Christ, it's a miracle. It's a supernatural work. It's a divine act. So... All I can hope for is that I can be used by God to partner with Him, to join Him in what He wants to be doing in the world. And all of us get that opportunity. We, we all get the privilege of being used by God to see His eternal plan come into fruition in the world. But we don't have to bear this heavy weight of guilt because so-and-so didn't believe when we told him the gospel. We can release that. We can rest. We can know, I've done my part. Now, if you're not doing your part, then maybe you do have something to feel guilt about because he's called you to do your part. We're all supposed to be engaged in one way or another, right, in the Great Commission. If you're doing nothing, then yes, there's something wrong. But if you are trying to do something to bring people to Christ, then, then just release that, that heavy burden and just say, I'm free. This is the Lord's work. I'll put it this way. God has chosen a definite number of the human family to be saved and they will come to faith through the proclamation of the gospel. If that is true, if my understanding of election is true, 
my efforts cannot make that number any bigger or any smaller. Some will say, why wouldn't it? Yeah. That's the next, I'm, I'm sorry, that's definitely, that's always the next uh, question. Yeah, well, that's an easy one to answer. Number one, because God had commanded us to. Number two, because people will not come to salvation apart from a witness. And so he's commanded us to be the one who proclaimed the witness. So, I, I just want to release you if you guys are feeling this heaviness. You don't need to. You can, you can rest knowing that as many as had been appointed to eternal life are going to believe when you speak the message of Christ to them. God will have his way. God will save his elect. Heaven is not going to be vacant. It's going to be filled. Everyone whose reservations was there on the Lamb's... Uh, what do we call it? The Lamb's... Uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he's got these reservations on this gigantic table, miles and miles long, and millions of people are assembled. Every person will be there who's had a, a, a reservation on that table. If your name is there, you're going to be there. He will have his way. So, let's just conclude this morning and, and try to wind up. We need to learn. We can learn from Paul and Barnabas. Now you say, well, I'm not a missionary like he was. Well, I beg to differ. I think every Christian, in a sense, is a missionary because God has called us to do something to take his gospel to people that are lost. Now you might not be going to China or Timbuktu or Nigeria, I don't know, but your neighbor is a lost person. People in your family, some of them are lost, and the Lord wants to use you as his representative to bring the message of Christ to them. So, four simple principles. Seek out those we have a common base of understanding with. That's like going to the synagogue. Begin by emphasizing what you have in common with them. That's what Paul does here in this sermon. From there, introduce them to Jesus Christ and his finished work that provides forgiveness. Just introduce them to Christ. Speak about Jesus. And number four, having done everything, rest in the sovereign grace of God. It's up to him ultimately, not you. So, that's what I see in this chapter. 